This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Latino voters in Florida turned out this election, but they may not have voted the way some pollsters and pundits were expecting. Today we're discussing the assumptions and misconceptions around Latino voters in Florida and their importance in this electorate. Joining me is Professor Luis Martinez-Fernandez. He's with UCF's Puerto Rican Research Hub. Professor, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, Matthew. We're also joined by El Sentinel editor Jennifer Marcial. Jennifer, thank you as well. Thank you for inviting me. You can join the conversation too. Just how important are Latino voters in Florida and what kind of overtures are you seeing from the candidates as they campaign in the Sunshine State? The number to call is one 338 5252 That's 1-866-338-5252. You can send us a tweet too. We're at WMFE Orlando. Luis, I want to start with you. Before we get to talking about the Latino, Latina, Latinx voters in Florida, though, I just wanted to take a longer view and ask about your thoughts on the election itself. Before November 3rd, you wrote a column about, quote, the increasing susceptibility of the American public to demagoguery and manipulation. I wonder what you're thinking in the week after the election with allegations of voter fraud and malfeasance floating around. How is it looking to you? Well, uh, those ideas... And conclusions have not changed for me. Actually, if anything, they've been strengthened. I am in the field of education, and I teach uh, history, social sciences, and I recognize how important it is to have an informed electorate. If we don't have an informed electorate, which is susceptible to manipulation, it's very hard to build a, a functional democracy on that basis. Sure. Um, Jennifer, what's the last week been like for you? I mean, I wonder if you've been able to take a breather since the focus politically anyway has not been so much on Florida in the aftermath of Election Day. Um, Well, much of a breather? Um, No, (laughs) it's been um, super on top of everything. Thank God Florida did not have any issues during this election process. Mm -hmm. But still, we have such a big Hispanic Latino population that there's so many angles to look at and so many things that that could potentially happen. Like, Mm -hmm. for example, we're currently working on a story about DACA and how these recipients of this protection feel like now they're not going to be personally attacked. So even though that during the election, everything kind of like, The flow of elections was um, easy, quote unquote, here Mm -hmm. in Florida. There's still so many layers to discuss within the Latino community. Mm -hmm. Was that sort of a surprise to you? Because I know a lot of newsrooms are sort of bracing ourselves for, uh, you know, some shenanigans or or recounts or that kind of thing after after the uh, vote was tallied up. It wasn't a surprise. I mean, we were prepared for the worst case scenario. Um, Luckily, we did not have to implement any of the to-dos that we had already like practiced in, in our newsroom in terms of what could possibly happen mm-hmm. um, with different scenarios. I mean, we're still in this process of not um, knowing whether Trump is going to accept defeat. So like we're still living literally like day to day. Yes, it's not really election day anymore. It's election week, election month, it seems. Uh, Luis, back to you, the question of how Latinos voted in this election. And let me just quote uh, something from the Washington Post talking about exit polls and what it revealed about some voting patterns. Quote, in Florida, Trump won a 56 percent majority of Cuban voters who account for roughly one-third of Latinos in the state, while Biden won a 68% majority of Puerto Rican voters. As a whole, Latino voters in Florida split 52% for Biden and 47% for Trump. That's a major shift from 2016 when they favoured favored Clinton by 27 points. Luis, uh, that's a pretty big kind of shift. What do you make of that? 
Yes, it is. And actually, the polls were on the mark regarding uh, the Cuban-American vote as well as the Latino vote in general in Florida. So there are no major surprises besides the fact that uh, Biden did not attract as many voters of Latino background um, as Hillary Clinton had done four years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, this should be a signal, I believe, to the party to start. Uh, remember uh, back in 2012 when the Republican Party had its own autopsy mm-hmm. uh, because it did so poorly among minorities and women? Well, the Democratic Party should have at least a biopsis to see what went wrong in terms of less support for the Democratic presidential candidate this time around. Uh, There are several factors in play. Uh, Number one, uh, Biden was not as present in in Florida as he should have been. Uh, Hillary Clinton had a larger, uh, deeper presence four years ago. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that, frankly, uh, the Democratic Party uh, likes to count Latinos as part of the winning coalition, but at the time of serving the cake, we, we basically, Latinos, Hispanics, don't get much of a slice, and um, some of us are, are keeping an eye on uh, the decisions of Biden in terms of the members of his, of his cabinet. Mm-hmm. Um, That's that interesting. Reflect- yeah, I wonder if you could kind of unpack that a little bit. I mean, uh, are you saying that... Um, it's it's kind of well and good for ca- candidates to campaign and, and talk to certain communities, whether it's the Puerto Rican community, the uh, Cuban-American community. But then when it comes to cabinet positions or policy, you don't see that translating into things that, that directly impact and help those communities? Well, l- tell me who you hang around with, and, I, and I'll tell you who you are. <laughs> I have seen very little in terms of uh, Biden's inner circle in terms of Latinos, uh, that to me is uh, a matter of, of concern, whether he will, in fact, um, include Latino Hispanic voices in his cabinet and other leadership positions. I think that would be a wise thing to do uh, because it's fair. It's, it is the fair thing to do. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, what are you hearing from uh, people in the in the course of your reporting in Central Florida? Is that a concern that comes across from voters and advocacy groups that you speak to as well? It's it's very mixed. I mean, I have to start um, with saying like, and and I think we were talking about this like what when we were planning for for this mm-hmm. um, for this interview process. Um, just talking about the Latino vote in general, it's kind of like a misconception altogether. Like many people are telling us that, I mean, they feel like they're being put in a box and that when they're talking about, oh, Biden has the Latino vote or Trump had the Latino vote, then many people who are Latino do not feel identified with those descriptions that they're putting out there. Mm -hmm. Like being Latino or Hispanic and talking specifically to Central Florida, which is the area that I cover, it's it's so much more complicated than 
what we see in the headline just saying like Latinos voted for Biden. Mm -hmm. Like what, who are these Latinos? Like it really depends whether it's a Puerto Rican or if it's even like a Puerto Rican who moved after Hurricane Maria or a Puerto Rican who was born here Mm -hmm. or a Puerto Rican who's been living here for 20 plus years. It's very different from the Cubans or the Cubans that live in central Florida versus the Cubans that live in Miami in Hialeah. So I think that the the misconception was just trying to like pack everyone into what the Latino vote was. And in terms of the political campaigns, I started hearing from the Trump campaign and and literally doing Spanish outreach. Like they had people sending me press releases, videos, everything in Spanish months prior to the election. Biden's campaign kind of started a little bit later in the process. And that's when they started putting out all the ads in Spanish. And sometimes they would send me like, oh, we have this ad in Spanish and it has a a Puerto Rican accent. Like kind of they were trying to to not put all the Latinos into one box and trying to diversify their message. But when I opened the the message, I was like, that isn't really what Puerto Ricans sound like. (laughs) So it was kind of confusing for me. I was like, well, it might be like a Puerto Rican who lives in the U.S. for a really long time, but not like Puerto Ricans who moved after Maria. Mm -hmm. And one of the other things that I think that did not work was the fact that the Biden campaign focused so much in the paper towels that Trump threw after Hurricane Maria Sure. That many of the Puerto Ricans that I spoke to were like, we already know about the paper towel. We went through it. We don't want to hear about it again. Mm-hmm. So those messages were kind of like, okay, can we just move on and focus on something else? What are you really trying to do for the for the Latino community, for the Puerto Rican in specific, for the Colombians, for the Cubans? Like, as I was mentioning to you, it's kind of like an onion Mm -hmm. and every layer it's a different culture it's a different approach so it's more complicated than just saying the latino vote if you're just joining us my guest uh jennifer marcial she's the editor of el centinel we're also joined by professor luis martinez fernandez he's with ucs puerto rican research hub talking about latino voters in florida central florida specifically and what the trump and biden campaigns got right and wrong we'd love to hear from you as well you can give us a call, one 338 5252 or send us a tweet. We're at WMFE Orlando. Um, I'm wondering, kind of, if you think about the coverage that you rolled out leading up to this election, Jennifer, um, what was your strategy for, for this? And was it different, uh, you know, in El Sentinel compared to The Sentinel or other English-language newspapers? There was so much going on that, to be honest, like there were times that, yeah, we were working together between the English and the Spanish sections. But then um, some other times, like we were doing our own thing for for El Sentinel, like obviously for for the English version, they they just have to cover it as a whole just because, yeah, there's a lot of Hispanics here and they do point that out a lot and they interview a lot of the. Um, the Hispanics in the community, but they also have to just like approach like just the regular Mm -hmm. Anglo community in general. Mm -hmm. So it has to be more broad in that sense, unless it's a story specifically about the Hispanics. Um, For El Sentinel, like we always lead with the Hispanic and the approach to the Latino community and whatnot, even if it's the same story that we're doing a translation from English to Spanish, like I would sometimes just switch um, what my my lead would be I would lead with the Hispanics being interviewed rather with just someone from any other culture. Mm-hmm. So in terms of our coverage, 
the main rule that I always have. Yeah, Central Florida has one of the biggest Puerto Rican communities, so it's very easy to go outside and interview people. And sometimes out of 20 people you interview, 19 are Puerto Rican. <laughs> so it's very easy to write a story about that. But my main rule with my entire team, it's like, yeah, even though those are the people that you're finding, like make it a habit and go the extra mile and find people of other like nationalities, other cultures. Because we might share the same language, which is Spanish, but culturally, we have completely different backgrounds. So for us, it's super important to point out there, um, even though that the campaigns may, mainly were focusing just on the Puerto Rican and Cuban vote, but what does a Colombian feel like? Like, mm -hmm. what does a Venezuelan um, feel like? What do they think? Do they have family in South Florida and they're voting completely different than they're voting? So it was a mix of of culture and backgrounds that we try to portray in our coverage. Luis, um, there are differences too, sort of generational, right? I mean, if, just thinking about Venezuelan voters or, or um, Cuban voters, uh, like, you know, if you talk to somebody who's been here for a couple of generations or somebody who may have just recently arrived or, or younger voters, there are going to be some pretty big differences in some cases, right? Yes, that's true, um, which is similar to what happens within other ethnic and racial groups. Uh, the general tendency is for younger Latinos and Hispanics to be more progressive. Um, on the other hand, uh, college education is a factor. Those Latinos, Hispanics who have a college education are also more liberal and tend to vote in a larger percentage for Democratic candidates so that's one. Uh, there are other issues of, in terms of language, for example, mm -hmm. and that's something that uh, the parties should be aware of. Now, if I may add, I think what we have is a problem in translation. And the problem is that, as we all know, the Latino community is very diverse, but the translators, quote-unquote translators or interlocutors of this community tend to be progressive. Um, some of them are intellectuals. And what they end up doing in large measure is presenting an image to the Democratic Party of a Latino population that does not hold a resemblance to the reality of a Latino population. For example... Um, Latinos go to church on Sundays, whether it's evangelical or Catholic. They do that in, in large numbers. Uh, some of them have businesses and therefore are interested in issues having to do with taxation, are interested in having to, ish, uh, having to uh, do with uh, issues of um, government regulations. Um, in other words, one of the things that we avoid in this country, for some strange reason, is to talk about class. Mm -hmm. We talk about race, we talk about gender, but we leave class outside of the picture. And it's important to understand that there are enormous class differences within Latinos, such as is the case among other racial or ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. So uh, to Jennifer's point, I guess there's a lot more nuance, a lot more layers to the onion to peel 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Intersection. Uh, I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about the power of the Latino vote in shaping Florida's political landscape. Uh, Professor Luis Martinez-Fernandez with UCF's Puerto Rican Research Hub and El Sentinel editor Jennifer Marcial, our guest. Stay with us. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about the power of the Latino vote in shaping Florida's political landscape. We're with Professor Luis Martinez-Fernandez from UCF's Puerto Rican Research Hub and El Sentinel editor Jennifer Marcial. And I want to bring Congressman Darren Soto into this conversation. He's a Democrat representing Florida's 9th Congressional District. Uh, Congressman Soto, first of all, congratulations on your win and thanks for joining us. It's an honor to be here. So uh, just kind of thinking about this, obviously there's a, there's a bit of a, not quite an, an autopsy, but uh, to our, our guest, uh, Luis Martinez-Fernandez's point, maybe a bit of a biopsy on the Democratic Party at least, and looking specifically at what's going on uh, with the Democratic Party in Florida and its relation to uh, Latino voters. What's your take on that? What needs to happen to, for, for uh, candidates to connect better with the Latino voters in Florida? So you have to break it down to regions first. Uh, Biden won 70 to 75 percent of the Puerto Rican vote statewide. That's an enormous accomplishment. He also won major uh, majorities in the Mexican-American community. Uh, In Central Florida, he did uh, very well. Uh, In South Florida, a very different story. Uh, We saw declining support among uh, Cuban-Americans and Trump doing better with those populations in Miami-Dade and Broward. Uh, we also saw uh, uh, support among the Venezuelan and Nicaraguan communities. And a lot of it had to do with the disinformation campaign. They successfully uh, lied and uh, said that uh, Democrats are socialists uh, when we are, in fact, capitalists. Uh, hmm. And many of the tricks that worked in 2016 that most Americans weren't fooled for uh, fooled by in 2020, uh, worked effectively in Spanish language uh, down in Miami-Dade, unfortunately. Uh, the good news is we have uh, the presidency and uh, good work that can be done to change minds. We did very well in Miami-Dade in 2018 when we took two seats uh, back for the Democrats in the U.S. House, which then promptly were lost again in mm-hmm. 2020. Uh, we expect the Biden administration to expedite relief for Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. We expect DACA to be restored. We expect Venezuela TPS uh, to be uh, a, a new executive order. So there's a lot um, that we're going to see really quickly to enact uh, a real change to help out uh, Hispanics, not only in the country, but in our native lands. Um, I, I guess Luis was talking about um, what he sees as a bit of a, a lack of diversity in the cabinet selections rolled out so far. And I'm wondering, are you, do you want to see more Latinos in, um, in uh, President-elect Joe Biden's cabinet? Of course, and we are being proactive as a Congressional Hispanic Caucus. We have already put forward a slate of um, very qualified Hispanics from across the nation through the Congressional Hispanic Caucus to the Biden campaign. I personally have put forward the names of six local individuals, uh, Hispanic individuals that uh, mostly are elected officials, some uh, from law enforcement for positions, and they've already uh, filled out their applications, and that process is ongoing. Uh, There will be uh, a lot of push to make sure that a cabinet is 
reflective of American diversity. Uh, obviously, we have the first African-American, uh, South Asian-American woman as a vice president. That's mm-hmm. a good start. Um, but these things not only need to be advocated for, but maintained. And even though Florida's Hispanic vote didn't deliver the presidency for Biden, uh, the Pennsylvania Hispanic vote was a huge part of his win. So we have areas of leverage that we'll be pressing uh, to the maximum. And uh, I believe we'll have a willing partner in President-elect Biden. Just going back to that label of socialist that you were talking about in the um, the uh, campaign rolled out by the uh, you know the the Trump ticket. What was going through your mind when you when you heard about that? When you heard some of those those ads being played? I mean, was there a bit of panic setting in? Did you kind of reach out to the Democratic Party and say, "Look, we need to do something to counteract this"? I was very concerned and reached out to Biden's top Hispanic uh, advisors. Uh, they were aware of it. Uh, one of the issues was that uh, the strategy was to fight in Florida, but the main focus was the Midwest, Arizona. Uh, and unfortunately, we had to be sacrificed. Unfortunately, uh, that wasn't what I wanted to have happen, Hmm. Um, but they focused on what they thought was the best path to win. In their defense, they won, uh, and they stayed focused, and the Trump campaign had to spend every last penny down here in Florida, which weakened their ability uh, in these Midwestern states that uh, Biden ended up prevailing uh, and in Arizona, where the Hispanic vote was pivotal in mm. uh, that victory as well. Just before we let you go, um, Congressman Soto, I wanted to ask, what are your priorities uh, for the next couple of years, and ha- how much does, for example, what happens in Puerto Rico factor into that? My main priorities first are getting us out of this pandemic and uh, having economic recovery. Uh, we have so many families who are sick, who have lost loved ones, who are hurting, whether they're employees who lost their jobs or small businesses. So that's the major priority. In addition, uh, we need to work on justice issues. We need to address climate change, and we need to desperately improve the infrastructure, both in central Florida in our vastly growing region, fix the traffic essentially, and uh, do so in a way to uh, lower our emissions. Uh, And long term, there are issues that obviously here in central Florida we care deeply about affecting uh, Puerto Rico, like the disaster relief, like mm-hmm. PROMESA reform, uh, and like uh, recognizing uh, the plebiscite where Puerto Ricans voted a majority for statehood. Uh, so those will all be on the agenda. Uh, Central Florida, obviously, is closest in my mind as we uh, go back up to the Congress uh, in a smaller um, but powerful majority in the House. Yeah, just one more question, if I may, too. I mean, the, one of the I guess, areas where the Trump campaign did pretty well was with um, evangelicals uh, in the Latino community. Is that something where you think there could be some ground to be made up by Democrats campaigning here in the future? Sure. The irony is that Biden did better with white evangelicals uh, as he did better with the white community in general. Mm -hmm. I think part of that is because they saw through a lot of the misinformation uh, attempts that were made in 2016, again, now here in 2020. And, and that's where I think there'll also be a natural maturing of the Hispanic community. This is the first time that they've been blitzed in the same manner in Spanish that we saw in 2016. Uh, and, and people smartened up to this, especially um, when Biden is not going to have an attack on religion. He's a deeply religious Catholic president uh, in elect and uh, and. So it'll soften people's 
fears, just like uh, with this fake campaign uh, for our next capitalist president of the United States. Um, the facts will bear out over the next two years, and we will have plenty of victories to be able to highlight uh, real victories um, that will uh, have a lot of these misinformation campaigns fade away if we're doing our job right. Congressman Darren Soto representing Florida's 9th Congressional District. Thank you so much. Thanks, Matthew. Uh, Jennifer Martial, I mean, thinking about the one of those differences there and, uh, you know, the evangelical vote, um, how big a factor is that here in central Florida, do you think, when you talk about some of those communities, whether Puerto Rican, Cuban-American, um, Colombian, et cetera? Yeah, um, we did get a lot of, of reaction from, from different um, different backgrounds of, of Latinos here in, in central Florida. And one of the things that many of them were saying when they were like pro-Biden, that they would vote for Biden just because they were against the the racism and discrimination that they had felt with the Trump administration. But many of them accepted that because of their religious background, they would feel more inclined to Republicans, um, but they didn't, did not want to vote Republican in that sense. Others were like, we have to vote Republican because they are the ones that are against abortion. They are the ones that align more with our like religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. So that's like a different layer in this onion, right? As far as what what is the focus um, and how do you approach it? Like many people think that just because you're a Democrat, then you are or you're pro-life, that you are pro-abortion. And then I think that there was uh, a message missed in that sense of explaining that the fact that you're pro-choice doesn't mean that you would have an abortion or that you are um, just asking people to have abortions left and right. So in that sense, yes, many of the Latinos, including many Puerto Ricans, tend to be more into like the Republican mindset in terms of those like religious um, approach, even though that it's always been said that in in general, Puerto Ricans tend to vote more like Democrat. Mm. But um, the professor will be able to to talk in more depth about this many puerto ricans that move here and register they even register as npas Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like just saying like oh puerto ricans or boricuas are going to vote democrat and just assuming that they will win the democratic vote here it's just a misconception altogether Mm -hmm. well uh luis what are your thoughts on that is that pretty much on the money well religion is a very important component in the lives of people you wouldn't be able to tell that or say that based on what happens in universities because we seldom talk about spirituality and religiosity. But the fact is that for large numbers of people, that that is the case. Mm-hmm. When you look at one of the strongest groups of group of supporters for Trump, it's white evangelicals, and that's close to eighty percent in that category. When you look at evangelicals who are Hispanic Latino, it is much lower. It's around 55%, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the African-American population that is evangelical, it is even lower, if I recall correctly, maybe 15% or so. So the first thing is that, um, and, and again, I go back to the issue that I raised earlier, education. Mm-hmm. I would suggest that voters 
uh, take a look at the Sermon of the, of the Mount and read it, which is, I see it as one of the first revolutionary manifestos in, his, in history, because it talks about inverting the social order. And, and then ask yourself the question, which of the parties has a platform or policies that are more closely aligned to that important document? I would encourage people to do that. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about the power of the Latino vote in central Florida and what it means for shaping the Florida electorate. We're with Professor Luis Martinez Fernandez. He's with UCS Puerto Rican Research Hub and El Centinel editor Jennifer Marcial. Stand by. Uh, on the other side of this break, we're going to hear from Renee Placentia, Republican state lawmaker as well. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about the power of the Latino vote in shaping Florida's political landscape with Professor Luis Martinez Fernandez from UCF and El Sentinel editor Jennifer Marcial. Joining us as well, Rene Placencia. He's Republican state representative with Florida's District 50. Uh, Renee, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on your win in the election. Thank you, thank you. Can you guys hear me okay? Certainly can. So, uh, what is quickly? I mean, you list education, healthcare, the economy as top three priorities for the next couple of years. These are things to, that are important to voters from all backgrounds, right? I'm wondering if there's one thing in particular that you found in talking to your constituents that resonates with uh, Latinos, particularly. Yeah, well, I think the same, um, the number one issue that resonates with Latinos as well as uh, as all members of our community is COVID and everything that surrounds COVID, whether it be the um, the healthcare impact or the economic impact. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, with all the polling and all, and all the anecdotal conversations that we've had, COVID is, is typically the number one response. And what's their take on how things are going? I mean, are they happy with what the state government is doing? Uh, is that the right path? They want to see some changes there? Yeah, you know, it's it's um, somewhere in the middle. I mean, there's there's certainly outliers of people who um, are frustrated with uh, the response from state government, um, federal government, and local government um, on either side, whether they believe that the government has gone too far or the government hasn't gone far enough to protect citizens um, from contracting the, the virus. Mm-hmm. But I think um, most people are just concerned about uh, uh, consistency with their employment, making sure that they're, they're employed and able to get paid, um, and, and that there's access to, to the proper health care in the event that they do um, come down with the virus. Mm-hmm. What do you think the Republican Party got right and how it went about campaigning in Florida this year, all, all up and down the ticket? Yeah, so I, I think that they got campaigning right is, is what they got right. I mean, you, you take a look at, at um, you know, and it's, it's no secret we're, we're able to see what both parties do and what both sides do as far as engaging with voters and certain demographic of voters. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about prior to this conversation is the, the uh, statewide director for the Trump campaign was Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that shouldn't be lost on, on your listeners because, you know, if you think about it, there was a concerted effort and a very aggressive effort to engage with the Hispanic community here in the state of Florida um, in a big way for the Republican Party, uh, as opposed to the Democrat Party, which, you know, just you didn't see a lot of activity. And you you certainly didn't see um, a, a concerted effort within our Hispanic and Latino communities 
uh, by the Democratic Party in the state of Florida. One of the things we've been discussing uh, with our guests, uh, Luis Martinez-Fernandez and Jennifer Marcial, is kind of the you know the, the the spectrum, the broad array of voters. You can't just say it's you know the the Latino vote. There is the Puerto Rican um, community here in Central Florida that sort of breaks down by age and and when people may have moved here or how long they've been in Central Florida. Um, and you know there's the Colombian American community, Venezuelan, etc. So um, when you think about that, I mean, does it seem like uh, that campaigns are really reaching out and targeting specific groups like the Puerto Rican um, community here in Central Florida specifically? You know, that's uh, and first of all, I was listening to uh, your show prior to getting on, and mm-hmm. it was fascinating. And and these conversations are ones that ones that I've grappled with my entire life. Um, you know, I'm I'm I was born here, Puerto Rican mother, Cuban father, um, very much in a in a Hispanic cultural family where we only spoke Spanish and our immediate family uh, was, we were surrounded by them. So although I was growing up here in in central Florida, um, I was still immersed within my family's culture. Mm -hmm. And um, and then, you know, growing up, I I became a teacher at at Colonial High School there 15 years where our student body is is overwhelmingly Hispanic. It's, I think at this point, it's around 85% Hispanic. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I always tell people, and and they're absolutely right, there's an, an array of different uh, cultures and backgrounds and um, you know political leanings, depending on on where you're from and when you got here and whether you were born here or not. You know, um, uh, on the census, I'm considered just as Hispanic Latino as as Jenny is or or Luis is, um, but my experiences have been different, and because of our our experiences shape our political leanings as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Having said that, I forgot your question now. I apologize. <laughs> no, that's all right. It was a bit of a compendious <laughs> question. Uh, um, I, I mean, it was, it was more about sort of the campaign and how, I guess, to your point, the, the uh, Trump campaign was able to, you know, target specifically, I mean, I think in general it was the, the, the uh, um, Cuban-American vote in South Florida. I'm sure we saw some of that here in Central Florida too. I do have a sort of follow-up though. I mean, how important is, and I, and I, I guess my sense is from your discussion of um, you know, the the electorate, as you describe it now, Latino voters are going to be very important in 2022 and 2024, right, whether they're Puerto Rican or uh, Colombian or Cuban or Venezuelan. Uh, absolutely. Listen, if you're, if you're a candidate, a campaign or a party, and you disregard such a huge uh, block of voters, you're making a huge error. And they they're uh, they're going to be important. They're, they were important this cycle, and they were important uh, in previous cycles. Um, you know, it's um, I, I would not be elected right now had it not been for the Latino vote. I, I firmly believe that I have been able to win my elections because I have been able to. I have been a member of of our community in our Latino community, um, and I've engaged in. Um, in the policy discussions with with my constituency, mm-hmm. and had had they not um, crossed party lines to vote for me, I would not be in office today. And and they have consistently done that cycle after cycle. So, um, you know, I think I'm a perfect example of how if if you uh, engage with with various mem- uh, demographics within your community and constituencies, um, and if you're effective and and if in not just messaging, but in, in your actions as a lawmaker, um, you know, or, or an executive, whether you're in an executive branch or a legislative branch, you can be successful in garnering their vote, regardless if you're a separate party or not. Just back to uh, priorities 
uh, from the top of our conversation before I let you go. Renee, what is one thing that you're going to be focusing on when it comes to COVID and trying to kind of wrestle that into submission? Yeah, um, I think the the biggest, my role is working on the workforce um, segment of it in in our our local economy. So uh, as you well know, Osceola County and Orange County are number one and two uh, ranked out of all the counties in the state of Florida for unemployment. Mm. And it's primarily because of our tourist industry and the lack thereof as far as travelers. And so we need to make sure that um, uh, we are uh, supporting those that industry, uh, supporting the workers that, that right now are, are either laid off or working less hours within that industry, uh, and making sure that um, you know we can bridge uh, this, uh, this gap between the position we're in now and a year or a year and a half from now when our tourism and our tourism economy is back to some semblance mm-hmm. of normalcy. Mm-hmm. We've got to make sure that we keep these businesses going. We keep, um, you know, people um, receiving benefits, whether it's unemployment or getting an, an, a different type of job. But we've got to make sure that happens, and that's what I'll be focused on in the next couple of years. Renee Placencia is a Republican state representative with Florida's District 50. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Um, Jennifer, just listening to that and thinking about the economy, and it, it, you know, Central Florida has taken a, a huge hit, and it's going to take some time to build back. Um, I'm sure conversations you're hearing from the uh, people you talk to are, are going to be no different from whatever community uh, we would be covering, whether it's um, you know uh, English speaking, uh, you know, people who speak Creole. Mm-hmm. Spanish speakers, um, what sort of stands out when you think about the, the path back and how big a factor that's going to be for, um, you know, whether it's Puerto Ricans here in Central Florida or, or other aspects of the uh, Latino community? It's huge because many of the of the Latinos here in Central Florida work, in, and it goes back to what Professor Luis was mentioning, it, it has to do with the, the economical status of, of the homes too. Like more educated um, Hispanics that have like stronger jobs that are not in the tourism industry are doing slightly better than mm-hmm. those that are in the poorer end of the spectrum and depended on, on, the, on the tourism industry here in Florida, either because they worked at hotels doing cleaning, housekeeping, or they actually worked at the parks. And going even further, I personally know people who have degrees and moved after Maria. And ever since they moved here, they've been working at the parks and not necessarily in what they went to college for. Hmm. So definitely the Latino community here has been very affected with um, the economic situation due to COVID. And on top of that, they've been one of the of the populations that have been more affected by COVID directly in terms of getting the virus or having people within their homes getting the virus. That Mm -hmm. also has to do with the fact that usually many of the Hispanics um, families live in, in houses in which there's the grandmother, the aunt, the father, the dad, and the three children, and they all live in the same house and Mm -hmm. they can't necessarily social distance within the house. You're all working outside because they depend on the money that they're making. They can't afford to stay home and home. So they are forced to go outside Mm -hmm. and work. Yeah. um, And that's something that we've heard from Orange County's um... go out and work so they can leave them at home. So it's a very complicated scenario, especially for people that are living paycheck to paycheck 
if you're lucky enough to still have a job at the moment. Certainly, yeah. The economy, jobs, uh, big factors there. I want to come back to the religion question, though, because I have a question from a listener, Brandon, and this is, uh, I think, something you might be able to address, Professor. Um, he writes, what I still don't understand is why it does anyone vote with their religion in mind. We are not a Christian country. We're secular. Um, and I, I, I just sort of wonder what your thoughts are on that, Luis uh, Martinez-Fernandez. Well, my, my reaction is that he's right. This is a secular country, but it is also a country with a majority Christian population, and that's especially true among Hispanics and Latinos. Mm-hmm. I have another question here from Anna, who writes, and if you want to win the Latino vote in Florida, speak about this one word more than communism or socialism, workers' union, promote unions. Um, I mean, back to that question of, of labor and the workforce um, Jennifer, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is that something that that uh, you're kind of seeing as as being a, a driving force with Latino voters in Florida moving forward? Are unions particularly strong? It really depends on the type of job that that people are are doing. I mean, um, where where I come from, I come, I literally moved here to Central Florida from Puerto Rico mm-hmm. almost four years ago, a little bit prior to Maria. That's always the question. Are you pre or after Maria? Um, so a little bit before Maria, I moved to Central Florida. And in Puerto Rico, unions are a big thing. And people are used to them um, because they feel that they protect their their income, that they will have the support in terms of whenever layoffs are happening. Here in Central Florida, because of unions, for example, at Disney, they were able to get that $15 an hour salary. So they do work and many people um, do support them. Um, but not every type of, not every job has, has a union that would um, support the, the employees mm-hmm. in that sense. So it's very broad too. I wanted to come back to, to something you were talking about before, Jennifer, and that is people who may have moved um, after Hurricane Maria or maybe uh, before that, and they have degrees and it's been difficult to find, you know, jobs in their specialty here. So they, they may be working in the, you know, the hotel industry or something. Have you talked to people who've said sort of this is enough, I'm, I'm, I'm done, I'm moving back to Puerto Rico? Are you seeing some of that sort of flow of people back to, to the island now? Many, many people have gone back to the island. I mean, um, I think that after Hurricane Maria happened, the numbers about how many people were moving here, they were all over the place. I mean, it got to the point where we were kind of like everybody was tracking how many people have gotten on planes and had traveled from Puerto Rico to Florida um, and there were several um, several of the airports that were giving out that information, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like a it, it wasn't very specific because, like for example, I went to Puerto Rico and came back a couple of times to go and do coverages. So whenever I got on a plane, I was counted as a person coming back from Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, the the statistics and and the Puerto Rico Research Hub did a great job in that that when they were putting out the numbers that it was around like 55,000 Puerto Ricans that had moved to central Florida, to the Florida area after Hurricane Maria. But, uh, and kind of like this political campaigns were, were depending on those Puerto Ricans moving here to move the needle more mm-hmm. to the Democratic Party or vice versa. Um, but a lot, a lot of people have moved back. And I think that's why this census that's coming out, it's going to be so important in actually knowing those accurate numbers in terms of how many people are here, how many 
are identifying mm -hmm. themselves as Puerto Ricans and in which areas they're living. But we have interviewed several people that have been like, you know what, I left everything back home, moved to Central Florida, looking for better opportunities, a better life. But it's so hard because I'm by myself. Mm -hmm. At least in Puerto Rico, I have the help of my mother helping out with the kids, for example. It's one of the people that we've been able to talk to. Another person had a business in Puerto Rico that obviously um, got devastated after the hurricane. They moved here trying to like just work in whatever they could find and eventually that didn't work out so this person moved back to puerto rico and now is in the process of reopening the mm -hmm. business he had there so there's different scenarios so i think that at the end of the day it's very like puerto ricans are moving back and forth and i think that another of the biggest misconceptions too is and it's a huge discussion especially in puerto rico about people that are oh they stayed or they left And it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you might be born in New York and you ended up moving to Chicago or you mm -hmm. decided to move to Florida. So being U.S. citizens, they have the ability of being able to move to whichever state they want. So, I mean, they're just looking for whatever's best for, for their personal life and for their families. And whatever they're getting income, that's where they're going. Mm -hmm. uh, Luis, thinking about the census, um, That's an interesting point. We haven't really talked about that, but how how critical is that going to be in you know shaping this electorate? And and um, I'm wondering what sort of other demographic shifts you might be looking for or anticipating in the next two years, four years. Yes. Well, first of all, I am a little bit suspicious of that 55,000 Puerto Ricans that number mm -hmm. coming after Maria, because the Puerto Rican population was growing through that process by almost 100,000 a year. So uh, I don't know what, what may be wrong there, but, but I'm a little bit suspicious, and I think it's an undercount. Hmm. Uh, in terms of the census, Latinos in general are the largest growing population in this country. I mean, there may be some very small groups uh, that are growing, but uh, as far as a major group, And uh, I was looking at some census statistics for Washington, D.C., and I wanted to figure out the racial composition of the district. I looked in the census webpage, and I noticed that in a matter of two years, the Latino population in Washington, D.C. had doubled. Hmm. That's very interesting. It's not growing at that rate elsewhere, But we need to keep in mind that we need to be we need to be ready for a for Latinos, Hispanics becoming, and it's going to happen sometime soon, about 25 percent of the population. Yet we're not ready in the training of teachers and bilingual education and hiring administrators who are Hispanic Latino. It is a very young population compared to other ethnic and racial groups. And uh, that means and, and that it's going to continue growing faster than other groups as far as people who become eligible to vote. Mm -hmm. uh, those numbers are very important, and that's why Latino leaders throughout the country were so emphatic about making sure that uh, all residents participate in the census. 
Hmm. Just uh, in the final minutes we have here, what about sort of voter engagement? We had pretty high turnout across the board this year, um, and of course presidential elections do tend to bring more voters out. But do you see that enthusiasm for getting out and voting persisting among Latino voters in Florida and the communities of Latino voters we have here? Well, the the last statistics that I read was that the Latino voter participation was 73%. That is enormous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't – and, yes, the enthusiasm is there. And, um, again, it's, it's a matter of the parties dealing with the Latino population, being honest with them. That That is very important because you can't go to Miami – and call people uh, socialists, and then come to Central Florida or Texas and do the same, and do the opposite. Mm-hmm. We we do expect a consistency in message, so that we're not being played around with. Um, Jennifer, what do you think of that in the final minute or so? Does that seem like a, a good call? I mean, a little more nuance in the messaging there. I think it's super important, like the the percentage of Latinos that ended up voting, it's impressive. And as this community keeps growing, if they keep doing if they keep doing a, a good job in promoting the importance of voting, it's going to keep growing. Um, one of the things that I will point out, too, it's like and I'm an educated person. And mm-hmm. even for me, it was complicated to like this was my first time voting in the U.S. Right. Um, for a presidential election. Um, so just understanding like everything that's into this and all the the different amendments and understanding about how who do we keep in court and who do we don't and mm-hmm. just being informed in that sense. There were a lot of groups that were doing a great job just trying to like get that message through. Mm-hmm. But many Puerto Ricans are fed up with the politics back home that when they come here, they're like, oh, I don't want anything to do with politics. So kind of like explaining what's at stake here and mm-hmm. the differences between like the different pro- political parties and the difference between like voting here every two years and voting in a presidential election. So there's a lot going on as well for, for the different communities, but definitely that outreach was, was done. Mm-hmm. Um, in South Florida, there was a little bit more of misinformation mm-hmm. targeting Hispanics than here in Central Florida. We... So I think that in general, the groups did a good job. We're going to have to leave it there, but um, Jennifer Marcia, editor of El Tentinel. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you. We're also joined by Professor Luis Martinez-Fernandez with UCF's Puerto Rican Research Hub. Professor, thank you as well. Well, thank you for having me. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for today's show from Bill Johnson and Danielle Pryor. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.